This episode is brought to you by Interactors Brokers Global Analyst. And I want to tell you about Global Analyst because it helps you find new global investment opportunities to diversify your portfolio and discover undervalued companies that may have greater growth potential. IBKR Global Analyst lets you easily, just really easily, compare the relative value of global stocks by region, country, industry, market cap, and even currency to find undervalued stocks worldwide. The results show you the current market price and various financial metrics like PE or PEG ratio or even things about margin, price to earnings growth. All these things are great to do when you want to find something that you maybe haven't really known about before. But you could also do something else. Maybe you have a list of companies in mind. You can click companies and enter as many as 25 symbols to compare. You could also easily trade global stocks from your phone or tablet too. Simple, worldwide stock trading. Find out why smart investors choose interactive brokers. Try IBKR's Global Analyst today at ibkr.com slash GA. Interactive Brokers is a member SIPC. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. February's in the books, and the results are mixed. The Fed giveth and takes away. No cuts on the table just yet. There's plenty of tech news this week, and our guest, Tom McClellan, author of the McClellan Market Report. All this and much more on episode number 854 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. You're having a fun-filled February. It just started. I mean, it just started a couple of days ago, but it is a leap year, so we have an extra day in this month, which is pretty cool. Hey, I'm Andrew Horowitz, and this is our weekly dose of, what do we call it? Financial education, financial fun, financial goodness. And my hope is that you're getting a lot out of this each and every week where we come together and talk about... Uh, Topics ranging from finance and investments through even estate planning and taxes, technical analysis, fundamental analysis. We talked last week about some really interesting things related to short selling, but more importantly, about being a perma bear. And I thought that was a really interesting conversation with our with um, with, with the slope of hope, as <laughs> as as Mr. Knight says, and. Uh, you know, I learned a lot about mental, well, anguish, but also, you know, how you can be so headstrong in one direction, stay there for whatever the reason may be, and why, in fact, you can't get off that that angle. And whether it's, it could be anything. It, it could be anything, and, and we focus on investments here, so it could be anything in the area of, oh, I only invest in uh, utilities or dividend-paying stocks only, or I only invest um in, let's say, you know, U.S., not overseas, international developing markets, emerging markets. Uh, 
only in U.S. dollar denominated, blah, blah, blah. You know, this all goes on and on, but it, it does tell us a little bit about the personality and how that can be a detriment to your long-term success when it comes to investing. Because really, the way I like to look at it is, generally speaking, pretty much everything is up for grabs. As long as I have a basic understanding of what's happening, I will look further into it and find out if that's something that I want to explore even further. Once I get to something that is so complicated that I find that there's no way I'll ever be able to understand it, and there's plenty of things out there. I mean, there's plenty of areas that are so complicated that I just, I don't want to deal with it. Like, for example, you know, talk about these structured notes. These things that are sold with the idea that, well, if the index goes up, this amount by this date, you'll get that much money. Possibly if it goes down up till this point, you'll be saved and you won't get any downside, but you may make more money. But if it goes below this and a 15 or a 10% differential by this date, again, once I see a prospectus of something that is uh, so complicated that I have to start figuring out all the angles of how I'm going to possibly win, I realize something very quickly, and that is very simple. That is not designed for me to win at all. It's like playing against the casino where there's no rules. The cumbersome nature, the very uh, finely written and, and very complex language that's used in many of these types of offerings are such that people don't even bother delving into and trying to understand because it's almost impossible. They rely on someone like an advisor to say, hey, this is good. I've heard about it. I understand it. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Truth is that oftentimes it comes also with a big fat commission as a payment for getting you to agree to put your pen signature on the line and offer up either a wire or a check to get invested. Not the way that I like to do things. So I was thinking about... Um, this week, talking about a variety of things, and I want to thank you for all of your commentary that you have sent in, especially about last week's discussion. You could do so at any time and, you know, head on over to thedisciplineinvestor.com and hit the contacts us um, area or uh, ask, ask Andrew. Also, it's another great way that you can put in some information. Just let it flow. But I was, but I was thinking, you know, what what do I want to talk about this week? Obviously, in the in the thick of things, the conversation is revolving around the Fed and tech earnings. And I was going to start talking about the Fed and, you know, how this week there really wasn't a decision that was made. It was more of a few different statements of facts that the Fed was trying to get out there in order to provide for a a, a better level of understanding by Markets, investors, trying to you know throw out that transparency out there, but I thought I, I think I I just don't want to talk about it because there's not much I can add. I mean, if you want an overdose on exactly every line and the parsing of the data and the information and the rehashing of the questions that were asked five thousand times by fifty thousand different commentators to different analysts over the last several months, and then exactly what was discussed in the press conference. Okay, go listen to that. If you want to overdose on this subject, just, just go to CNBC. That's all they talk about, that and AI. Suffice to say that here's the bottom line of this. 
Powell walked, a, a, I think, a very, it was a very fine line. It was a very, he had to be careful because I think that the markets were generally in a, in a relatively fragile place because of, of the amount of run-up that we've had over the last several months. And I think what he did was provide a, a slight reality check with, I suppose, the notion that this, this idea that a crazy amount of rate cuts that are going to all of a sudden appear in an economy that seems to be pretty strong, not going to happen. The idea that we are going to start with a, a, a movement of, of seven cuts in 2024 starting in March is, is incredibly insane to begin with. And I think he put to rest that that's probably not going to happen because some of the things that are happening that we see are actually good news. We have positive momentum in GDP and the U.S. economy. Employment trends generally okay. We see that inflation could be ticking higher. He did talk about this. This is what I think spooked markets last week was the idea that with exceptional growth comes the possibility of renewed inflation, which makes total sense. But enough of that. Forget that. Let's 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 starting to bore me to be honest. But I guess I could talk about it for a long time. But I really don't. I don't want to get too far into it. Last week we um, also talked about earnings, or this week we're talking about last week's earnings. I should say, um, still a great deal of hope out there that's riding on the future of AI, which we've talked about ad nauseum. And I, for one, am, am hoping that. What has been promised and speculated on that is built on the notion of something to come in the future is built on a sound base. That the sound base is a base of reality. That that base of reality is actually going to come to fruition rather than being just a, a pipe dream that we've seen so many times, time in and time out, with so many different innovations in the last number of years. Because even we see something like a, a stock like AMD, which doesn't really have a great product or really a product offering right now to really compete with NVIDIA, some of the other companies in the uh, in the AI GPU space, which they are talking about. They come out and, and have a decent earnings, but guide down. The stock sells off dramatically and then kind of doesn't really do anything too terrible. You would think with the move that it's had, with the ratios that we've seen on a, on a price-earnings basis, price-to-sales basis, that it would really take a hit. But no, no. A few percent? I mean, you know, this stock deserves to be down, I don't know, 20%. But no, there's still this hope, this idea that there's going to be something that happens in the future. And this is the hope that we've seen many times and, and, and really pronounced since 2020 with the thought that it doesn't have to be today that we get that reality as long as one day in the future and we're willing to put our money up to bet on that outcome sometime in, in sometime not now but out there in the future so kind of interesting uh discussions that are going on i do want to get to our guest today tom mcclellan uh and, and talk with him so let, let's start that segment of our show shall we And before we do that, I just want to talk about interactive brokers. 
Because Interactive Brokers is your gateway to the world's markets. Interactive Brokers offers commissions starting at zero, zippity-doo-dah, zero, for U.S.-listed stocks and ETFs. Um, also, enhanced price execution via IB Smart Routing and access to their powerful traders' workstation. It's actually, they have also web and mobile. They also have API trading platforms. So a full range of opportunities for any investor and trader. Join clients from over 200 countries and territories to invest globally in stocks, options, futures, forex, bonds, and funds from a single integrated account at the lowest cost at IBKR.com. And as promised, our guest is Tom McClellan. Now, you know him. He's the author of the McClellan Market Report and the Daily Edition since, I think, way back in the late 1990s. He's a huge following for the work that he does, and I'm always pleased and very fortunate to uh, have him as uh, a colleague and someone who uh, visits the show quite often. So, Tom, welcome. Hey, Andrew. Welcome to February. Well, almost here, yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about a few things, because in the last number of conversations that we've had, we've talked about, um, we, we went back so far as to understand about how your parents met, by the way. But we, um, we, we talk about some of the important indicators that you used and developed and you like to discuss. And, and one of the things that is part and parcel to the core, I believe, and for, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, of what you do is a specific item that deals with the number of stocks that are advancing and the number of stocks that are declining. And that, I think, helps you understand a few things about markets. So I'm going to ask you, because I have some follow-up questions on this, but first, can you explain for the beginners what advanced decline line is, what advanced decliners are? And, and some of the inherent importance when trying to discern market direction and strength. Sure. Well, it's really simple. Advancing stocks are the ones that closed today higher than yesterday. And declining stocks are the one that, ones that closed below yesterday's close. And so various data agencies count those every day. We tend to trust the data published by the Wall Street Journal and Barron's more than other data sources because they're a little bit more rigorous and their um, uh, their custody of all the data yeah. and 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 checking it. Some uh, some other uh, data agencies that publish it, they'll they'll include things like the NYSE ARCA stocks that are include all the ETFs that, that are not really NYSE stocks. And so you don't never know what you're going to get. So if you stick with one data source and it's a good data source, you use it. This whole idea of watching advancing and declining stocks dates back, if you can believe it, to 1926. Mm. There were a couple of guys that worked for the Cleveland Trust Company named uh, Leonard Ayers and James Hughes. Leonard Ayers had, was an Army officer in World War One. In fact, he was uh, Jack Blackjack Pershing's logistics officer trying to figure out oh. how to get men, horses, and cannons across the ocean to go fight in World War One. something that the U.S. had never done before. And uh, then he got out of that and, and uh, got into the investment business. And he and James Hughes were wondering in 1926, what does it mean that so many stocks go up and so many stocks start going down, are going down? So they started collecting the data. And that's why we have good data back to 1926, because they're the ones who collected it. And generally speaking, the, the, ni the nice thing about advanced decline statistics is that every stock that's on the exchange gets an equal vote. 
And that right. can be a good thing because when you look at price indices, they're, they tend to be weighted by capitalization, which is appropriate, so that the bigger stocks get more of a, of a voice. Well, the littler stocks tend to be the ones that are more liquidity sensitive. They'll start to suffer. Uh, it's like if you if, imagine a, a mother pig and, and she had a litter of 11 baby piglets. Well, if they're all being well fed, then then they're then the mother pig is a, a good source of uh, liquidity, for lack of a better term. <laughs> but if if she's a poor milk producer, then the runts are going to starve to death first. So you don't watch the the big piglets to see if they're healthy. You watch the runts to see if mom's a good uh, provider of liquidity. And the same goes for the stock market. We see the small cap stocks and the marginal investments like junk bonds. We start to see them suffer before illiquidity becomes a problem for the overall stock market. And that's why we watch advanced decline statistics. You know, I think that so many people have a difficult time with understanding. Obviously, if we step back and we walk away way back, we can see what a trend is, right? That's, that's, that doesn't take any special knowledge. You can see what's going on. It's going up, it's going down for a long period of time or a short period of time. I mean, that's obviously very simplistic. But when you're right up against it and your nose is on the screen and you're in real time, sometimes it's a very difficult thing to do. So this, I guess, declutters it, right? It makes it so that it's, it's how much more simple can you get but tracking the number of stocks going up versus the number of stocks going down. I mean, in its in its in its simplistic form, it's it's easy breezy, right? Sure. And most of the time, the advanced decline statistics will do what the price indices are doing most of the time. So in a in a strong uptrend, you'll see price indices making the higher lows and higher highs, and you'll see the cumulative daily advanced decline line. Uh, which which tabulates the advanced decline difference every day, you'll see it also making higher lows and higher highs most of the time. Yeah. It's only when they do something different from each other that it gets really interesting. And when you see a divergence yeah, that's where, key. That's key right where there. prices are making a higher high and the advanced decline line is not confirming, then then you start to worry. We had a little bit of a divergence developing in January. And, which was a little bit troubling, but divergences can take a long time before they matter. That divergence just uh, at the end of January got what I call, it got rehabilitated uh-huh. where the, the advanced decline line was making a lower pattern. It was not exceeding its December high. And then it finally got around and did it. So it was not confirming the higher price highs, uh, but then it came around and did. So it got rehabilitated. So we don't have that divergence we don't have a, a big warning of giant trouble. You can have ordinary garden variety corrections and pullbacks anytime the market wants to, but we're not seeing the the big signs of a giant bear market looming, not yet. Do you ever wonder, or not wonder, do you have a worry? Do you have a worry that you're being outsmarted? Now, let me let me clarify that. Because uh, obviously, if, you, if anybody's a parent, the answer is yes, right? So, but- when it comes to some of this, you talked about how the market saw a divergence and then it cleaned itself up. So therefore, there was no longer that pattern concern that was evident. Therefore, that would not lead you towards maybe selling your positions, as an example. Do you have a worry that there is this understanding of these various market conditions that are well known to a point that machines can actually bring you to the edge of where the concern is, but then turn it around on you? And and, and if so, does it even matter? That's a great question, especially the last one, does it matter? I, I like to say that technical analysis 
of the stock market, especially. It's the only game in which the object of the game is to figure out the rules of the game. And the more people who know the rules, the more likely those rules are to change. And so, yes, what you're referring to is that the game could get gamed itself mm -hmm. by the algos figuring out that if there's an edge and exploiting it, that the time frame over which an advanced decline line divergence tends to work, uh, it's a longer uh, time frame than what algos typically go chasing after. They're looking for something really short term. They're looking at two period RSI or, or something for a day or two or a couple couple hours. And so an advanced decline lane divergence versus prices tends to unfold over weeks. And that's not something that they're going to they're going to be oriented on on trying to exploit. And it's more powerful than what an algo can do, because when you see liquidity start to dry up, uh, the, the the algos are not the main source of liquidity. They're they're marginal, um, eaten around the edges kind of traders. The but the banking system is what the the provider of the liquidity. And when the banking system starts to dry up, it shows up in the advanced decline statistics. It shows up in the junk bonds performing more poorly than the than the stock market does. And those are those are tidal forces that just can't be nipped away, nibbled away at by by any algos. They, they just don't have enough to, to overpower that. With regard to the importance of of AI, so not AI. I don't know why I just said that. I mean, advanced decline. I got AI in my, my mind because everybody's shoving it in there, you know, <laughs> but uh, or though maybe we were talking about that quietly in that last conversation when it came to being outsmarted. The. Advanced decline, the importance of the advanced decline, which is, a, again, a sheer number of, hey, how many stocks are going doing well? How many stocks are doing poorly? We could explain uh, that, I don't know the exact number, but 70, 80% of a stock's particular long-term performance can be correlated to market moves, right? Uh, the market as a whole. Volume has always been an important area that I've looked into in terms of understanding the the, the core uh, of, of who's buying, how much they're buying, where they're buying, and where their the commitment is, the line in the sand, so to speak, of you know who's putting their money to work uh, with with their mouth. So where's your thoughts on on volume and and um, and maybe even contrast contrasting that with with advanced decline? Fascinating question. And that is one of the things we look at is not just the number of stocks going up or going down, but the number of shares being traded buy the stocks are going up versus and that we call that up volume versus the shares being traded on the on the decliners and that's down volume so the same way that you can look at the advanced decline difference and tabulate a cumulative advanced decline line you can do the same thing with up volume versus down volume and interestingly right now there is a divergence between the the major stock market averages and the up and down volume line it, we don't see that divergence anymore in the advanced decline line, but we do with the up-down volume line. And so that's a little bit of a disagreement uh, that we're going to have to watch. I don't have a, yet a conclusion to draw from it, mm -hmm. that, uh, other than to say, well, it's it, it's not confirming the strength that we're seeing in the advanced decline line. So we don't have all the horses pulling together. So I, I find divergences interesting because when, when do you – you know, divergences usually yield a contrarian or a contrary signal. And the question is, how much do you trust it? And a lot of things that we're going to talk about today, I'm going to ask the same question. How much do you trust it? For example, uh, we get a uh, confirmation of a change of the 
uh, McClellan Oscillator and the Summation Index to a point that you're like, hey, there's a start, and usually, 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 is a start of a, a new uptrend, for example, as an example, right? Um, do you have such confidence that you're throwing, like, the, the bulk of money at it? Excellent question. And there is no indicator or signal that's infallible that works all the time. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that you're dealing with a bunch of faulty indicators. They're, they all are flawed. Just like any, if you have a group of people, they're all hundred percent of them are flawed human beings. Yeah. Meet my family. Gotta deal with them. Meet, meet my and, family. <laughs> <laughs> and, but so you look at the preponderance, preponderance of the evidence. You look at what's the most likely outcome. You look at confirmations all over. Uh, and the thing to know about a divergence, if you see one, it's not a signal like you, like if you crossed a moving average or a price oscillator turns up. And a divergence is what I call, it's a condition. And the, the, the difference is that a divergent condition can persist for a long time before it finally decides to matter. And it will pick its own moment to decide to matter, not just the moment that you and I happen to notice it. So a, a divergence is not a signal, it's a condition. And, a, and one of the things that can happen with the divergence is it can get rehabilitated as we saw with the advanced decline line divergence. And it, now it's taken away, taken away that information and says that uh, things are looking better from a liquidity standpoint. And they should be looking yeah. better from a liquidity standpoint because we're still in this seasonally bullish time of the year. Mm-hmm. Tends to last, uh, tends to get a, a rise to a first spike in about May, but the, the ultimate top for the seasonal pattern is in July. Um, and that's shifted a little bit over time versus how it used to be years ago. Everybody has heard sell in May and go away. Well, it's actually pair a little bit in May and then and get out in July before August and September. And that does that doesn't come off the tongue in a nice rhyming yeah, phrase. Definitely not as poetic. No, <laughs> not at all. But so we should expect that things are going to go well. We should expect that during an election year with an incumbent president running for re-election, things should go well because most of the time when you have an incumbent president running for re-election, the election year is an up year. This time could be a little bit different because Biden's poll numbers are are really weak and and that affects how the stock market is going to react to that. The reason why election years are tend to be an up year when an election when a, when an incumbent is running is because most of the time the incumbent wins. And so the market hates uncertainty. So if you know, even if you don't like the guy, if he wins, then you know what you're going to get. And so you don't have to worry and the risk of uncertainty. But if in a year when the incumbent is polling so badly, then you have much more of a likelihood of an uncertain outcome. And so that the rules get a little bit different in terms of the odds of the stock market going up or down in election year. Unless, unless it's 2024, where the possibility of Lamar Jackson catching his own pass in the playoff or two former presidents bidding for the presidency, right? So it's a little bit different this time. <laughs> uh, trying to trying to put all the past uh, presidential elections into a blender and spin it out together to say, what's it mean? Well, it's a little bit tough when you, when you change the conditions as drastically as we're doing this time. Just to get back to the conditions discussion, then I want to forward back to the analogs and the, and the, seasonal trends. Uh, That was great where you talked about the conditions could be met with divergences and a variety of other things. We're focusing on that. And the way I see it for an easy way to think about this is weather. You have a weather condition, like a low pressure system. That's the condition, period, end of sentence. That could create 
further conditions and chances for a uh, maybe a storm system to really whip up of tornadoes or hurricanes or whatever it is under the right conditions that may be added on to it. But that doesn't mean it has to happen. It could just be a low-pressure system. A divergence is a condition that can be just as simply a divergence for whatever reason, and then it can just pass on by. Or it could lead to something more serious if other things are met and the right scenario is met, right? Would that be a good way to look at it? Yeah, and especially for your stocks versus the averages. Right. That's true. That's right. Your, your mileage may vary, yes. Yep. That happens all the time. Yep. Let's go back to this other point, though, is this this area of um, of analogs and seasonality, and that's another thing. So now we have this, this thing of indicators, and they're kicking off, and they're saying one thing. You talk a lot about this, and you you dig into some, I might say, some, uh, some, some, I don't mean to come off harsh here, but I would say uh, some, some things that are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> you know, like, wait, he's comparing the current market condition to uh, the gold and silver rush of 19 blank blank and pushing it forward 22 and a half years and showing that there is a correlation and I don't get it. You know what I'm saying, right? Sure. Well, I like to look where nobody else is looking to find answers because if I know everything that everybody else knows, then I'm not going to do anything better than they are. I got to find answers that nobody else has. So I tend to look in obscure places and I drill a lot of dry holes analytically uh, where I look at something and it just turns out not to be that interesting, but you look at at the interesting stuff that nobody else is looking at and occasionally you can find a pearl. What What, what is one of the most, what is the most uh, interesting things that you found that you'd be like, nah, this is never going to work, but oh boy, what, what surprised you? Well, uh, I look at climate data. You mentioned weather. I, I started looking at global warming as a phenomenon years ago, just because I wanted to understand it more. Um, I tend to be a contrarian about everything all the time anyway. And so I didn't necessarily believe what people were telling me about, well, the CO2 causes warming and, the, and we're, we're going to have a thermal runaway and we're all going to die. I said, well, wait a minute, let me look at the data. So I'm start, as I'm starting to look at the data, I'm finding some interesting insights about the stock market. And one of those is that uh, the changes in global average temperatures tend to foretell changes in, in the inflation rate by about three years. They tend to foretell changes in long-term interest rates by about five years. And so we are now in the cooling phase of this long-term 60-year cycle that operates in a lot of the climate data. And, and a lot of the climate um, experts will talk about the, a 60 to 70-year cycle because it, it, it have a hard time precisely defining it with 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 data that only goes back 150 years or so. But we can see the 60-year cycle in interest rates going back all the way to the 1700s, and it matches with the heating and cooling cycles of the planet and uh, down to pretty precise, you know, down to monthly um, granularity. And so we're in a cooling phase due to last until about 2035, which means a rising phase for long-term interest rates due to last until about 2040, and that's a really long-term mm. picture. Mm -hmm. And month to month, it's going to may, may be different, but that's what the trend is going to be. And if we can escape the cooling phase by having 
the planet stay a little bit warmer as it has been doing. We've had a lot of El Ninos that's kept the temperature up and that's helped to keep interest rates down. And that's a good thing. Uh, this is the other contrarian point that, that I have found in the research is that warming is not a bad thing. Warming helps keep inflation low. It keeps helps keep interest rates low. It helps keep crop yields up. Uh, yes, global warming is better for crop yields than cooling periods. And so I'm not terribly worried about global warming as a problem. I think uh, I, I celebrate it. I think it's a whole lot better than global cooling because that's going to bring famine and hardship and wars and higher inflation and higher interest rates. Do you ever, do you ever ask the question why? When I, when I, let me just get back to when you said that there was a correlation between or the, the stocks of warming and cooling and going back to this year and all that. Do you ever look at the stuff and, and say to yourself, Why? I mean, you just explained a little bit of it with regard to, you know, heating is better for crops and inflation and things like that. But, you know, some of these things don't have as easy of an explanation, right? That's true. And why is the natural human inclination to ask? We always want to know why something works and how something works. Why, why does it do that? It's that's, that's very natural to wonder that. It doesn't always help you to wonder that because some things – uh, surpass our understanding, uh, but yet we can observe them. I, I cannot explain why turning the light switch up from the down position makes all the lights come on, but uh, I can still operate the light switch and I can still know that it's going to work. So you don't always have to know the why if you can establish the is to a sufficient degree. But when it comes to warming and inflation, you can see it operating in the agricultural cycle and in crop yields. And so that's a, a really good explanation because food inflation tends to flow through into other things really well. Why it explains every, it with the precision that it has, that, that's harder to establish and, and mathematically to try to draw uh, assignments of how much credit one factor gets versus another for price changes. That's a really tough thing to do mathematically. Right. But when you see that it's been working for decades and and, and in fact, for all of the, the modern history of temperature measurements, and then you start to accept it, even if you can't explain the why. Right. So with that, we look at other things like, for example, uh, you know, car prices and particularly used car price. We look at the Mannheim used car price index, which has been coming down finally after a ridiculous spike that we saw just into COVID in the last few years. You know, I went to my a car dealer and I was looking um, at possibly buying a car. I bought my car off of the lease because it just made total sense to do so a year ago. I went to the car dealer and I said to them, I want to look for a car. The general manager, the sales guy, and the loan guy said to me separately, don't buy a car. Prices are ridiculous. There's no deals on the, on the financing side. And you're going to get killed in the future on a resale. I'm like, okay. But here we are that you're telling me that somehow there is a correlation seasonal factor or some kind of an analog that shows that used car prices typically will match stock price movements, um, but recently diverged. Yeah, it's, it's a fun correlation. And anybody who's listening at home can can Google Mannheim used car prices and it's one N in Mannheim. Uh, not two ends like the city in Germany, but one end in Mannheim. And you can, they'll, they give you away the, the data. It's monthly data. It's on their website. You can download an Excel file with it and you, and you can track it yourself. It has a little bit of seasonal fluctuations up and down because uh, people tend to buy cars more at, at some times and less at other times of the year. And so there's some wiggles in it, but it, it also trends. And since the data that they have goes back to uh, 1997. So it, 
That's it's only uh, less than 30 years, but that's still pretty nice amount of data. And interestingly, that data on used car prices tends to match the movements of the S&P 500 pretty nicely, except that they diverged in 2023, where used car prices have continued to come down from their post-COVID spike. But stock prices started coming down in 2022, but then they've turned back upward in 2023, and they are diverging. That's a fascinating thing because we've never seen that before. We've never. So if you ask me, what does it mean when they diverge? And I say, well, we've never had one. So how do I tell, how do I know what uh -huh. it's going to mean? Except that generally the two move together. So if they're going to if they're going to continue like they always have been moving together, then either the stock market's going to have to go down to meet where used car prices have gone or used car prices are going to have to go up to meet where stock prices have gone. They can't continue disagreeing like this forever. I suppose they can if they really want to, but that's not how it's worked for the prior 27 years. And so expecting it to just suddenly break and not work ever again, uh, that's a tough one to sell me on. But uh, right now it's a, it's a big divergence and it's kind of peculiar. The, the used car prices also follow the money supply M2. And I specifically like to look at M2 uh, as a ratio of M2 versus GDP, gross domestic product. And uh, it's, you know, it's not a problem to create a bunch more money, to print a bunch more money if the size of the economy expands to absorb it. And so then you get the M2 GDP ratio staying constant. Well, we've we, the Fed likes to tinker with things. And so the M2 to GDP ratio has not been staying constant. They, they printed a bunch of money during COVID to try to keep the economy aloft. And so the M2 to GDP ratio went way up. That helped push stock prices way up, and it also helped push used car prices way up because everybody's got a bunch of extra money from all the free COVID money being splattered <laughs> around. Right. And, and Detroit's not That's making it. any new cars because everybody's all homesick with COVID. And so that made uh, the clamor to buy any inventory of used cars uh, result in a big car price spike. But now that's coming down as Detroit is catching up to demand and and people are realizing that, uh, no, I don't really need to buy that expensive of a used car. So things are normalizing. And generally speaking, the stock market also tends to match the M2 to GDP ratio, except just recently. For the last year, the stock market has gone up whereas that M2 to GDP ratio has continued downward. So we have a we have an, a big anomaly that is going to have to get it addressed. And, and my long-term cycle work says later this year, later in 2024, things are going to get real ugly for the stock market. It's not getting ugly right now, uh, and it's not supposed to get ugly right now, but after about June is when things are going to get real ugly. And in fact, uh, we've known this for a long time. We've known it for years because of this long-term cycle work. And I said back in 2019, that whoever wins the 2020 election, there's no way that guy's going to, that party is going to retain the White House because of the big, ugly decline that the stock market is due to have in late 2024. Um, I, I didn't know that that President Biden was going <laughs> to help that prediction help so much because of his job, poor job performance and his low poll numbers. It's interesting because, uh, you know, you look at some of these things and, and, and when it comes to, um, the the that other that final divergence you talked about, or this 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 odd reaction of actually taking money out of the economy. When you look at what the Fed did back in various times, but in 2020, where they liquefied the markets, the economy, where they did these very strange maneuvers with quantitative easing, and the idea of it all was obviously to elevate not only individuals and companies, but also the stock market and the wealth effect. And that people have felt like 
they had money and there was more a better level of overall confidence and all that that goes into it, right? And 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 exactly the opposite is happening. Now, yes, there was a massive reaction in 2022. That was an advanced reaction and it was ahead of the curve. And so maybe that had to level off a little bit. But what's interesting is you talk about how the Fed fund target is maybe a full percentage point higher than the two-year, which means that the, the Fed is currently overly restrictive, right? Yeah. Let's say that. Let's agree with that. Let's say that they, you know, compared to historical levels and where they are and real rates of return compared to where the Fed funds rates are, et cetera, it's a restrictive stance. But yet the economy is still humming along pretty well. And people have asked, you know, um, soft landing, hard landing. I said, no landing, no landing and not landing. There's no landing. The plane is like, it's got a, it's, it's an electric plane with an unlimited length of extension cord. It just keeps on going. And it, it's amazing. This cycle, you've been around a long time. You've been around as long as I have, or maybe longer even uh, in the markets. It's, it's pretty fascinating that they, they are, first of all, they stick the landing somehow and manage to go get out of this with, with, well, we know that they've they've taken their the opportunity to already rework the inflation gauge last year. They didn't like how it calculated, they changed it, right? That's how it happens. And so now we're getting some of that response where it looks a little bit better because of the comparatives and and what the components they put into their calculation without going into all the detail. But what is the point, though, if they are overly restrictive and, in fact, we still have a GDP that seems pretty reasonable and employment seems, seems reasonable, you know, not getting crazy in any direction, right? Uh, and we see that, you know, inflation is still there. I mean, what what, do you, what is that telling you? Well, there's a lot of parts to you, what you asked about. And so let me take it apart and focus on each one individually. The first is that, yes, the two-year note yield does a better job than the FOMC does at figuring out in, in advance what the FOMC is going to do. And right now, the two-year note yield, you can plot that, that versus the Fed funds target on the same chart. The two-year note yield is a full percentage point below the Fed funds target, which means that the Fed, the Federal Reserve is a, a full point behind the power curve, and they need to cut rates now. Not in March. They just need to cut rates today. This 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 hour right now, because they're so far behind. And when they have been behind in the past, it has a bad outcome. We, they were behind in 2007 uh, when the two-year note yield was already falling, but the Fed thought they knew better and wanted to fight inflation. Then they realized, oh, shoot, we, we were too tight. They were too tight back in in, in, in killing the, the internet bubble back in 2000. And, and so generally speaking, when, when the Fed thinks they know better than the bond market, they end up being wrong and they have to overreact. So we're going to set up a condition later this year, the longer they hold off and the longer they resist wanting to cut rates, the, the more urgently they're going to have to when they realize that they screwed up. So that's the first thing. You also asked about where's the money coming from that keeps that keeps the stock market aloft. Mm -hmm. And that's a, another fascinating question because obviously the Fed is a great source of liquidity a lot of the time, but the Fed being overly tight right now is not the source of marginal liquidity where all the money that is that is around to keep going into the stock market, where that's coming from is that it's not getting taxed. Right now, the current total federal tax receipts from all sources is only about 16% of GDP. And that's a, that's a comparatively low level. 
it tends to bounce in, back and forth between about 16 to 18 percent of GDP over the last several decades. When it gets down to 16 or below, that's terribly stimulative to the stock market. When it gets above 18 percent, we get a recession every time it happens, without question. Hmm. Right now, it's down to 16 percent, and there's an important reason why. 2022 was a down year for the stock market. And so because of that, uh, investors didn't pay very much in the way of capital gains taxes during 2023. Mm. And not only that, your, your quarterly estimated payments that you make in 2023, they're based on what your ca- taxes were calculated at for the tax year of 2022. So when April 15th, 2023 rolled around, people paid in a whole lot less in capital gains taxes and they paid less than capital gains taxes via their quarterly estimated for the remainder of 2023. So the federal reserve, the federal government has been taking in a lot less tax money, which is good for the stock market because that leaves more money out floating around. Now come to April 15th of this year, April 15th of 2024, a whole bunch of investors are going to be real happy well, they're going to be unhappy about having to report a bunch of capital gains that they made in 2023. And so when April gets here, a whole lot of investors are going to have to be writing a big check for the taxes that they're going to have to pay on all those capital gains they made in 2023. And not only that, that's going to drive the calculations on all their quarterly estimated for the rest of 2024, that the ones that they're going to have to pay in June and September and December, all of those calculations of their quarterly estimated are going to be driven off of the capital gains that they made in 2023. So a whole lot more tax money is going to start flowing into Uncle Sam starting in April and again with every quarterly estimated payment. And that's going to take money out of the banking system, out of the stock market and put in Uncle Sam's hands where he can do something with it, but investors can't use that money to help lift stock markets. And that's going to be where the problems are going to develop later this year. It's not a problem now in January to February because people haven't started paying their income tax yet for last year, but it's going to be a problem later this year. Hmm. Interesting. Tom McClellan, tell me where they can get in touch with you, get your you know, freebie that you give out and trials. Tell everybody what they can get from you, where to go exactly. If you just do a web search on Tom McClellan, you'll find me. But our website is mcoscillator.com. That's a contraction of the McClellan Oscillator, the tool that my parents developed years ago, which looks at the acceleration that takes place in the advanced decline statistics. We we have a twice-monthly newsletter. We have a daily edition comes out every day. Uh, if you don't want the paid subscription products where the good stuff is, we have a free learning center with lots of articles about uh, how to do analysis we're using the indicators we have. We have a free weekly chart and focus series you can sign up for, where I pick one chart and talk about it and analyze uh, what it's saying and, and how to use that for looking at the stock market. Uh, but it, yeah, if you want the good stuff, you need to get our subscription products. Yeah, love it. Tom McClellan, uh, always a pleasure having you on and always learn something new every time. So thank you so much for being here this week. Appreciate it. My pleasure. It. Thanks. And that's going to wrap it up for this week's Disciplined Investor Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a little bit of exhausting thinking about all the things that happened last week with the various claims numbers, information with the Fed and the earnings, 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 earnings. And of course, the uh, as, I, as I joke around on Twitter, which my handle is Andrew Horowitz, one word, make sure to follow me. You'll get first crack at when the podcasts come out and some other great information. <laughs> CNBC, 25 hours a day of full coverage every day of the Fed. Every day, all day, it seems. You give us 24 hours, 
They'll give you the Fed. I mean, that's that should be their new tagline. Pretty amazing how their coverage just doesn't stop. It's almost like there's someone behind the scenes goosing them and providing them the storylines on a relative, relatively uh, constant basis. Because the only two things they talk about right now, two things, is AI. Well, I'll give you three things. 90% of the time they spend with the Fed. 9% of the time they talk about AI. And 1% of the time they talk about earnings and the rest of the financial market, various news items. It's, 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 it's gotten bad. That's how bad it's gotten? You know, okay, well, you say, well, there's not a lot of partisanship. We at least want to have politics on some of these channels. Yeah, but I got to tell you, it's gotten to a point that there's something else. They just can't even provide information. Bloomberg still is my favorite overall. That's me. They still have a lot of information that is is uh, too much information. It's almost like trying to take a little sip out of a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. But that is great because it's just nonstop. And by the way, unsolicited and just something to mention because I'm on this thread and theme right now. If you're looking for really good information and you are an investor, investor, maybe even especially a trader, you have to go try briefing.com. Briefing.com. I can't, I can't, I can't recommend it high enough. I can't. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me this week and every week. I'll see you again soon. So, so long for now. discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.